You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. Louise, thanks so much for joining us. So you've done this as a nurse and a nurse practitioner for 27 years. What has your journey throughout this sedation evolution been like for you? Kaylee, thanks for having me um, as a part of your podcast. I started nursing in 1992 and I started working in the ICU, taking care of trauma patients, respiratory failure patients. and. During that time, we would paralyze and sedate all of our patients. And I really didn't think too much of it. I thought that this was just a practice, that um, it was uncomfortable to be intubated. It was a terrible experience to be uh, intubated. So we wanted to shut off our patients' brains. And and as as I continued to work in the ICU, there was a new school of thought that Paralysis was not good. It um, created a lot of um, problems for the patients in the long term. They would develop uh, weakness. They would develop polymyopathies. And to the extreme, cause death. So we started to um, uh, promote mobility. But I will admit, I was terrified. I thought that I was going the patient was going to be harmed. I, I absolutely did not want my patient to self-extubate, as I'm sure a lot of nurses feel the same way. So not on my watch is, is the patient going to be extubated. But as, as the more I did it, um, I wouldn't even wait for physical therapy. In the morning, but after I did my assessment and gave them their medications, I would either dangle my patient or I would put them in a chair. And I could do that with another nurse's help and the respiratory therapist monitoring the ET tube. And so uh, the more I did it, the more comfortable I became with it, the less, you know, my fear was dispelled. And how was that culturally? I mean, was that, did that become a standard in that unit? No. Um, in fact, I got a, a, some of the nurses who had been there, who the veteran nurses would just, um, would just say, you know, if, I'll get my patient up if I have time but I'm not going to get my patient if I don't have time. And when you think about it, it it really doesn't take that much time to get your patient up. Uh, If I were to, if we were to do time and motion studies, I would, I will bet you it's no more than five or 10 minutes. And in a 12 hour shift, you absolutely have the time. So how did your perspective on that change? Well, the more I did it, the more I realized that um, this was really important for the patients. And, you know, there was a lot of, uh, at the time that I was doing all of this, there was a lot of empathy too. I, I, I would think, okay, if I was in this patient's shoes, would I want to just lay in bed and not be able to move? Because I, you know, I'm a person that believes in exercise is important, movement is ex- important, and so for me, it was it was more of a, I'm going to put myself in it. I mean, if that was my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, would I want them to just lay in the bed and develop and develop so much weakness that they end up um, going to a nursing home. And that was like the 
Nobody wants to go to a nursing home. And so um, as my as my career progressed, and we actually, you know, the, the disadvantage of working in an ICU and not following these patients through their con- continuum of care, where you see them go from the ICU to the floor, and then they end up in a nursing home, I, you know, and I... Th- and as my as my career progressed, and as I continued to do the research, and noting that, and then out of our own research, what 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 I noticed was that those patients that we mobilized initially and maintained their strength got to go home. They didn't have to go to a nursing home, which you know again that empathy piece. If that was your loved one, if that was you, you wouldn't want to go to a nursing home. You would want to go home. You would want a normal life. You'd want to be able to do those things that you were going to do or enjoyed doing before you were hospitalized. And so the, the, the problem with having severe ARDS and respiratory failure, I mean, there's, there's that piece that comes with it where, you know, your recovery is long, your cognitive deficits are there. But I don't think we know even enough about, you know, if we don't sedate people, if we, if we um, maintain their strength and don't shut off their brains, um, what's their long-term outcome? I mean, what, what are they like in five or 10 years? I mean, we've looked, at, we've looked at standard of care where, you know, these are people are still being paralyzed and still being sedated. We're looking at that and five-year outcomes are different. What I'd love to see is, is aggressive early mobility and then look at these people's outcomes in six months and a year. And I think we're, 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 we're working on getting uh, that kind of uh, research done. Yeah, it's hard to find research out there on something that's not generally done. It's hard to study what you don't do. Um, so it's exciting to think of all the studies that we're hopefully going to be doing with our patients. We do know that 98% of our survivors do go home. Um, but it's exciting to think of following them in the long term to think of what their outcomes really are. Are they back to work? Are they, are their brains working? Because our practice is so different. What is it like for a patient that comes in that requires mechanical ventilation? What is your practice like now? Um, well, our practice now, if they come in and they have a, a terrible respiratory failure, they're on high uh, oxygen support. They're on, you know, 100%, 20 a peep. Um, we try to um, put them on a little bit of a little bit of fentanyl just to take the dis- the discomfort and the and the dyssynchrony out of being on a ventilator. And and in the meantime, we are talking to them. We're explaining to them, look, this is a this is a tube that's in your throat that's helping you to breathe. It's 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 keeping you alive. And then, um, you know, it doesn't take, but sometimes it takes an hour. And then the patient understands what the tube is there for, rather than clouding their brains with all these medications that distort their reality, it creates a delirium for them. And then there, and then, and then you can't talk to them. You can't explain anything to them. And so what we do is we, don't, we prevent that from happening. We don't, we don't create the problem. And so the patient is on a little bit of fentanyl, and then we, um, and then we mobilize them. We'll start with dangling, and we'll see what their saturations do, and um, and we maintain their strength and 
in most cases, um, that's enough. They start to wean off the ventilator. In the most severe ones, um, I can think of a few examples where we we had this guy who had come up to the Sundance uh, Film Festival, developed, got influenza, and uh, they sent him from the ER in Park City to here, to Salt Lake, and we, um, he was intubated, he was on 100%, 20 of PEEP, we proned him, and, and all he was on when he was prone was on dexmedetomidine and fentanyl, um, he was prone for 16 hours. I, I, I was on that day, uh, got the physical therapist and said, hey, when we, when we turn him supine, let's just see if we can just dangle him. Well, she took it a step further, which I was thrilled with. She just, uh, we proned him. Um, and when we proned him, I mean, when we put him supine, he was on 60% and uh, 14 or 16 of PEEP. She turned him onto his back, and then they went for a walk, and they walked 200 feet. Wow. This is someone who had come to us with severe, terrible influenza, and he was just one of those, you know, the, uh, the, the obese uh, gentleman, which I think in the, that was in uh, 2000, that was 2009. It, 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 he just fit that mold of those the, that it most commonly affected. And he, within a few days, was extubated. Didn't he help prone himself? Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he, he did. He rolled over and, and, and blessed the physician that was on that night because most people would have paralyzed him. Yeah. Because he was prone. But he wasn't moving. He was comfortable. He was. He yeah. wasn't deeply sedated. So and, was and we would ask him if he was okay, and he'd nod his head. And he had one arm above above his shoulder, the other one just sort of at his side, and just one leg, uh, you know, bent at the knee. Just was comfort. Had a position of comfort. It was like he was asleep. That's a powerful example because, yeah, that's those are the people that we are quick to deeply sedate and paralyze. Right. Um, right. You can't deny his ventilator requirements, and yet you were able to preserve his brain function. He didn't develop delirium. No. He was mobile the next day. And then what happened to him? Uh, he got to go home. He got, he, he got back on his plane and flew back to, I believe it was, I want to say Atlanta. I mean, his mother came out here, and I've never seen a woman so appreciative of the fact mm -hmm. that her son was... I mean, the care she he received. I mean, she she couldn't she couldn't thank us enough, which is really what we're here for, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He didn't have to have a tracheostomy, no rehabilitation. He got his life back, right? Because of this. Process. I mean, I'd love to follow. I'd love to have you know, give him a phone call and just say, "Hey, can you do these things? Just ask those questions of functionality and just see." Are you back to work? Does yeah. your brain work? Yeah. I mean, it would be just, it would be so nice just to, a part of, a part of me regrets not being able to just say, hey, give us, here's, you know, give us your number. Let's, we'll call you in six weeks, in six months and see what's going on. Right. Because he's such a, such an anomaly. Um, we've heard from some art survivors that had the traditional um, weeks, sometimes months of immobility and their journey to recovery and not even full recovery. Um, but that is such a contrasting example. Um, 
what role do you play as a nurse practitioner in those kind of experiences or even within each patient that comes into the unit? Um, I'd like to think of myself as um, the champion for that whole process. Um, I'd like to think of myself as a person that goes in and dispels the nurse's fears of this is the right thing to do. And I, and I, and I have multiple, on multiple occasions said to the nurse, this is the right thing to do. I mean, you almost, if you don't have this conviction that this is the right thing to do, your patients, your patients won't do well. Um, you, there has to be a person that champions this because you're, there's so much pushback. There's so much fear because the, the nursing population, it changes so much. And, and there, and there's so many, sometimes I think the, 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 what, what am I looking for? The disadvantage is the, the nurse that has 20 years of experience because, um, she just, she did. They, I'm saying she, but she or he just refuses to do that because they just don't, they don't, they don't have time. They don't think it's the right thing to do. They think that we're being cruel and it, the cruelty lies in sedating them, number one. So they end up being on a ventilator at, at and this is the data is out there five to seven more days because they're immobile then somebody that you mobilize and are off the ventilator for for five years before they need to get off the ventilator. I, it 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 just use common sense. It it makes it makes sense to not do this so that they can get off the ventilator and not develop ventilators associated pneumonia, not not develop the deconditioning, not develop the delirium, not develop the PTSD, not develop the depression, and not develop the su- suicidality. You. <laughs> you, you I think it's it's almost malpractice not to. I mean, I, that's a big word, I know, and it makes a, it'll make a lot of you uncomfortable, but you have got to think about what are we doing to these patients? Is it in their best benefit? Their it's best in interest. their best interest. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? How are we going to help these people so that they can get their life back? And that's everyone's desire and vision. Um, I think that. Oh yeah, no one's well in, in, ill-intentioned. Mm-hmm. It's just that you, you just, you just, they don't know any different. Right. And so, you know, you, you. So what? I mean, on multiple occasions, it's telling the nurse, you, "We've got to get out of that box we're in," and and you'll see. And and what what I found too, which is really interesting, is the more success they have, then the more they're willing to do it. Um, you know, I. I I think of times when we um, just had to just be in the room, be in the room and keep that patient from being sedated and saying, just give me time, give me, because we don't do the, it, it's novel. It, you know, we use things like medications like Seroquel. We'll use Depakote. We'll use clonazepam instead of Ativan because um, it, clonazepam seems, I mean, it's a benzodiazepine. It's the same class as Ativan, but it seems because of its long, uh, because of its long acting effects, it's less sedating and, and, and you, you can use less and have the same effect. And, um, the first things, one of the first things I do when I 
when a patient comes in who has respiratory failure, I drop a feeding tube so that I have access to give them uh, oral medications and not IV. And we, I've seen us get away with really low, really low doses of clonopin, like 0.25 milligrams, and those are rare occasions as well. Right. A yeah. lot of people can get by with the non-pharmaceutical um, therapies, such yeah. as mobility, and we'll address in another um, episode how we can address uh, anxiety through activity, but it is amazing. I, and I see it time and time again with our patients. I just had a patient say, um, she was requesting med- medications for anxiety. So I was asking her where her anxiety was coming from, and she was on the ventilator. And um, she said, I'm tired of looking at the same four walls for hours on end. And I said, <laughs> okay, well, what do you think will help that? And she said, I need to go for a walk. And I said, yep, we can do that. And then she wrote, I don't need meds. I just need to walk. And I said, you said it better than I could have. So, And, you know, I think that, um, the, uh, Kaylee makes another another really interesting point, and a good point is that we we can't talk to our patients, and we should talk to our patients, and we should be able to, and especially in this day of all this technology, you know, you have an iPad, they can text you their answers, and if you sedate them, they're not going to be able to do that. If you if they're so weak. I mean, we've had patients that were so weak that they couldn't use a call light, so they're not going to be able to type. Mm-hmm. And so, so um, but if you're able to talk to your patient and they tell you what they need, then, uh, you know, what better situation do you want? And these survivors that talk about their experiences under sedation, they had needs, they had pain, they had anxiety, they were panicked about their delusions, and they couldn't reach outside themselves. And no one was there to help them. Yeah, I have an interesting, there was a, there was a patient that, oh, this, this gentleman was, he had the hantavirus. He was so, so sick. Uh, for a week, he was on 100%, 25 of PEEP with PAO, PAO2 in the 30s and 40s. And we... We, we got him through that to the point where he was in the hospital. He was in the ICU for three months. And I remember one night I went in and he was, um, he was um, terribly confused. And what he, what he, so, but as I was talking to him, he was a Vietnam vet. And he was telling me that when I put the, the temperature probe in his ear and it would beep, that beeping he thought was somebody with the gun sights set on him to shoot him. Oh, wow. That's how, yeah. Yeah. So. And yet they look like they're sleeping and cozy to us. We, I mean, we do this, we've done this to our patients. It makes me sick to my stomach. But how does it make you feel as a provider to know that you've been part of a change? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been at a, it, it, to me, I have such convictions about why the change is so good that, um, it's worth everything that's gone on, but, but it's, there's been a lot of sacrifices. I've sacrificed, uh, personal relationships, professional relationships with people because it's such a passionate topic with everybody. 
And because um, there's so much, you know, uh, there's, I mean, there's the, the evidence is out there, but we don't practice the evidence. Uh, the, the low stretch evidence, I mean, it's, it's dis you can't dispute it, but people still use high peep. So I don't understand it, but um, I'm, convi I'm convinced that what we're doing is the right thing and it's worth it. It's worth it for my patients. Thank you. Yeah, there's such a contrast in practices, standard of care throughout even our own country, despite all the research, I saw it as a travel nurse. In the end, we have to do what we know is best for our patients. In the right. end, we have our own ethics, our own conscience to answer to. Yeah. And I think yeah. you're a great example of that. And your passion, your teaching has made such a difference. I've seen nurses come in from other places and be really alarmed by the contrast in our practice. But through your teaching and example, those are the nurses that become some of the biggest advocates for it because they have actually seen the contrast. They've seen what yeah. it's like. And one other thing too is, is the ones that really are uncomfortable, um, I'll just say, I'll, I'll, I'll be in there with you. Mm -hmm. It'll be fine. We'll yeah. see. I'll be in there with you. And that seems to be a, a good, um, it, 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 it decreases their discomfort somewhat. Yeah, they don't feel alone in it, and they yeah. shouldn't have to feel alone right. in it. Right. <clears throat> I think um, especially when we get patients from outside facilities that have been sedated, and then they come into us and we say, time to take it off. But they're, they are by then severely delirious. It is scary because a lot of our nurses have not seen that kind of delirium because we don't cause it right. for the most part. Yeah. We're able to prevent and avoid it. Yeah. So when they're, you, know, you take off the propofol or whatever they've been on, and then the patient is agitated and scared and thrashing. They have that panic. They, they feel so vulnerable. They're afraid of their patient's safety. And so, yeah, it takes so much support to say, it's okay. Give them hours, even days to clear out. Yeah. But once the nurse understands what's going on, why it's like that, and how to help their patient, and that sedation is not going to help them through that delirium, then they are right there yeah. with you. And they, they do so much work to keep the patient safe and help their brains clear out and you can tell how excited and proud they are because they're so invested in their patient yeah. the next day when they come back and the patient's sitting in the chair oriented yeah i was so proud of this nurse one time her patient <laughs> her patient was coding she was doing cpr she was literally doing compressions and she um hollered out to the charge and the charge was, was right there she said hey will you make sure that my patient gets walked I know the physical therapy is coming by right now. I mean, while she's doing compressions, and I was so proud of her. Wow. Because uh, who does that? <laughs> right. It's like, make sure my other patient's yeah. alive, but yeah. it was just that important to her to make sure that her patient's so still. So it's just this whole culture change. I mean, we, um, we actually, just a little bit of background, we actually uh, opened an ICU to, for the, other ICU, for the four, five other ICUs in the hospital that I worked in uh, to send their delirious patients that were not coming off the ventilator, that were sedated, and they would send them to our ICU and we would get them off sedation, treat their delirium, mobilize them, and get them. And the first paper that uh, came out was uh, about mobility was early mobility is, 
is feasible and safe came out of the ICU that we opened to get out the patients off the ventilators. It had to be that specialized. And, and so we, I did that for, I did that for um, 10 years of getting, you know, working side by side with psychiatrists and social workers and getting these patients, treating their delirium, getting them to sleep, getting them mo- the mobility. And um, I haven't seen a case that we couldn't help. No, it's been an amazing honor to be under your your guidance throughout this process <laughs> yeah. because I came in so new and I still feel so new, but I have learned from you that it's worth doing the right thing for patients. Yeah. So thank you so much for all you've done, Louise, and for sharing your, your true expertise with us. Thank you. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.